When we last saw Job and his friends two weeks ago, they were engaged in what you might call a spitting contest for the ages. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, each one were outdoing one another in their verbal slaps to Job's face. And Job, not to be one-upped by them, comes right back at them again and again and again. The argument, in fact, goes on for 29 chapters, chapters 3 through 31. And then a young man named Elihu jumps into the fray for six chapters more toward the end. And I want to remind you of what we saw and what's going on in these chapters, middle chapters of the book of Job. Job, you may remember in chapters 1 and 2, had lost nearly everything in a single day. His servants, his livestock, his health, and worst of all, his seven sons and his three daughters, which were all slain in a horrendous tornado that knocked down the house. And then, while Job was still in mourning for his sons and daughters, his servants and his livestock, as I mentioned, his health was taken away. He received a disease that covered him from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, we're told in chapter 2, verse 7. In chapter 30... He tells us that his arms and legs turned black. And in chapter 7, we're told that the boils on his skin hardened up and oozed with pus and that worms ate their fill from the running sores. And that all of it went on, Job says in chapter 7, verse 3, for months. And as Job sat in a pile of warm ashes and tried to relieve his itching, he finally could take it no more, and he burst forth in chapter 3 with a 26-verse-long lament, basically saying, why was I ever born? Why don't I just die? I'm better off dead. Now, Job didn't really mean that. He later will tell his friends in chapter 6 that his words were rash and that words of a person in despair, quote, belong to the wind. Don't listen to what I said. I didn't really mean it, in other words. But Bildad and Eliphaz and Zophar wouldn't have no part of that. They were going to reprove Job for his hasty words, whether he took the words back or not. And while they began in these middle chapters to reprove Job for his woe-is-me attitude, they very quickly transitioned to actually pontificating on why it was that God might have allowed all Job's calamity in the first place. And they began to ask this question, if God is good, how could something so terrible happen to Job? And the only answer they could come up with was that Job must have been suffering because of some hidden sin. For surely they thought God wouldn't allow an upright, faithful person to undergo calamity. No, they say calamity is reserved for the wicked. And so they turned to Job and said, what is it, Job? What are you hiding? Surely you must have cheated the widows and robbed the poor and done other dreadful things too. Bad things, they said, don't happen to godly people. Now, of course, they were wrong, and we noted that two weeks ago. And we have to look no further than the cross of Jesus to see that they were wrong, to see that God, for wise, loving, Romans 8, 28 kinds of purposes, sometimes allows even the most godly to suffer. God does sometimes use calamity as judgment upon sin, but that's not always the case. Sometimes our calamity, as in the case of Jesus, is meant by God to do others good. Maybe he'll put one of us in the hospital or the funeral home because there's someone in one of those places who needs to hear about Jesus. 
or who needs to see how a Christian suffers and dies well. Other times, calamity is meant to strengthen our faith. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1.9. We had the sentence of death within ourselves, he said. Why? Not because God was angry with us. We had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So sometimes God allows difficulty to build our faith. Sometimes God allows difficulty to prove our faith is already strong. And that was the intended purpose with Job. And there may be a whole host of other reasons for the tragedies and losses that God allows. Calamity is not always a judgment upon our sin. Job's friends didn't get that. And therefore, they hailed forth vigorously against Job's character. This is happening to you because you've been acting wickedly, they said again and again and again. And Job, for his part, couldn't abide these kinds of assaults against his integrity. He could not sit quietly by while these men sliced his reputation in pieces with the lances of baseless slander. And so he shot back at them, sometimes in tones that were rather sharp in his own right. And there you have the summation of these middle chapters of Job. And last time we looked at the words and ways of Job's friends, noticing what they got right, but then attempting also to notice and learn from the ways in which they were wrong. And as promised, today we're going to give equal consideration to Job's half of the argument. And we're going to ask the same two questions. What did Job get right? And where did Job go wrong? in his discussion with his friends. I hope you've had time in the last couple of weeks to read through these middle chapters. We're not going to take the time, of course, to read them all this morning. And if you haven't had the chance to read them, I hope you'll take the time in the next week or so. Ten minutes and five chapters a day this week would do it. You'd be all the way through these middle chapters of Job, and that would add a great deal of color and detail to the broad summary that we're attempting to give both last time and today. So then... Let's look at Job's half of the argument, beginning with the question, where did Job go wrong? In these middle chapters of Job, as you read them, I think it will be obvious to you that Job says some things that aren't right, that aren't true, and we want to just summarize them this morning. Where did Job go wrong? And we've already mentioned that Job's woe is me speech in chapter 3 though it was understandable given his circumstances, was regrettable. It was a bit over the top, and it wasn't in keeping with Job's general character. Indeed, as I mentioned to you, he would have agreed with that assessment. He tells his friends in chapter 6 that his words have been rash and that his words belonged to the wind, that they were as weightless and worthless, in other words, as the dried leaves of late autumn. Job understood that he was wrong in chapter 3 to feel sorry for himself. And since he admitted as much, and since we looked at chapter 3 last week, I want to move past that area of Job's mistake and look at some other areas in which he erred, four of them in fact. Once Job and his friends began to banter back and forth, Job made four critical mistakes in judgment. And I want to give them to you now. Number one, Job was wrong to join in the spitting contest. Job was wrong to join in the spitting contest in the first place. Job could have given his friends the same benefit of the doubt that he wanted them to give him. Remember chapter 6? 
He said, my words were rash, they belong to the wind. He wanted them to give him the benefit of the doubt and to cut him some slack. And perhaps Job should have done the same thing when his friends said some things that were rash and out of character. Job didn't have to defend his character before these men. Job didn't have to cut them down to size. Job didn't have to enter into the quarrel. But enter he did. And he wasn't simply speaking calmly and trying to explain himself either, nor is he trying to defend God. On a number of occasions, Job shows himself to be quite sarcastic and testy with his friends. For instance, chapter 12, verse 2, he says to them, Truly you are the people, and an intelligence will die with you. Or to put it in the way we would say it, perhaps, Job said to his friends, Oh, that's right, I forgot. You guys know everything. How could I have ever questioned you? All-knowing Zophar and Bildad and Eliphaz. That's the way Job began to speak. And then in the very next phrase, there in chapter 12, he says to them, I'm not inferior to you. I'm not inferior to you. And that's a phrase which he'll repeat more than once in the course of this squabble. And from his words, it's clear that Job wasn't simply trying to explain himself or defend God. It's clear from his words that things got personal with Job, that he was angry, that he had taken offense, and that he felt insulted. And Job was going to win the argument at all costs. And let me ask you, do you ever get like that? Do you ever argue with your spouse or your parents or your kids or your co-workers or your brother or sister, fellow church member? Do you ever argue with someone and get so intent on winning the argument that nothing else matters anymore? After a while, it doesn't any longer seem to matter what tone of voice you use. It doesn't, after a while, seem to matter what names you may call them. Eventually, and some of you know this very well, eventually it doesn't even matter if you think you're right anymore. What matters is I'm in this argument and I'm going to win, right or wrong. You ever find yourself in that bed of quicksand? I do. And it's pride. That's all it is. It's pride. And it seems to me that this is exactly where Job and his friends ended up. Had they all just shut their traps for five minutes, it might have been obvious to them that both sides were speaking a little bit rashly, that both sides were saying things that, given a little thought, they knew weren't exactly true and that they knew they would later regret. But this is the way of quarreling. Once we've entered with both feet... Once Job and his friends had entered with both feet, we often care more about winning the argument than what is really right and true. So learn the lesson of Job and his friends. Solomon puts it this way in Proverbs 17:14: The beginning of strife is like letting out water. In other words, once you start an argument, it's really hard to stop. So Solomon says, abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. That's a lesson to learn from these long, tedious chapters. Had Job and his friends been wiser, they would have abandoned the quarrel before it ever broke out. Number two, Job was wrong in that he put God in the same box as his friends had. Job was wrong in that he put God in the same box as his friends had. Now, I'm going to spend far more time on this point than on any of the other things Job said and did, both good and bad. Because I believe that Job's placing of God in the same box that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar had placed him in was indeed Job's biggest mistake. 
Really, the third and fourth items in this list of Job's mistakes probably both flow at least partially from this one. So I want you to hang in there with me as I give some extended thought on this point, namely that Job was wrong and that he put God in the same box as his friends had put him. Now let me remind you, first of all, of the box that Zophar and Bildad and Eliphaz had placed God into. Let me remind you of the main argument that they were making all throughout these middle chapters of the book of Job. Again, God, they said, doesn't allow tragedy to strike except as a recompense for some terrible and wicked act. Or to put it more simply, they said bad things always happen to bad people and good things happen to godly people. These men, in other words, didn't see any other possibility for why a sovereign and good God would allow a man to lose his wealth and his health and his children unless that man had committed some gross iniquity, unless that man had provoked God terribly. And we've already pointed out both this morning and last time the folly of that kind of thinking. God has all sorts of wise, loving, Romans 8:28 kinds of purposes for allowing suffering even in the lives of the best of his saints. But Job's friends couldn't see that. They had wrapped God up neatly into a box of their own creation, a box that said bad things only happen to bad people. And I want you to see this morning that Job, in some ways, had placed God in the very same box. Job largely believed the same way his friends did. In fact, if you read these chapters, never once will you hear Job saying to his friends, you know, recompense for sin is not the only reason why God allows suffering. He never says that. He never says, you know, Zophar, God has lots of good, wise reasons for allowing suffering. So it's not necessarily true, Bildad, that God is angry with me. It's not necessarily true, Eliphaz, that my suffering is a result of some sin. That's how we, for the last two messages, have been shooting down the beliefs of Bildad and Zophar and Eliphaz. But Job never makes that argument. Job never tried to convince his friends that God's ways are more diverse and complex than they had yet imagined. And that, that therefore, there must be some other reason than God's anger that Job was suffering so badly. Instead, as his friends make this Accusation, bad things only happen to bad people. Job immediately, repeatedly answers his friend's theology by defending his own character, by arguing that he's not really a bad person, by arguing that he doesn't deserve to be punished. He doesn't argue, in other words, that there was some other explanation for his suffering. He doesn't argue that he was not being punished for or as a sinner. He doesn't argue that. He just argues that he doesn't deserve to be punished as a sinner. Indeed, Job often makes it clear to his friends that he does indeed believe God is punishing him, that God is angry with him. In Job's mind, chapter 16, verse 12, God has set him up as his target, his target. In chapter 16, verse 9, he says that his adversary calls God his adversary and says he glares at me. In 19.22, he says that God is persecuting him. Can you imagine using the word persecute for how God is treating you as a believer? That's what Job says. And this is not the language of someone who believes that God sometimes wisely, faithfully allows bad things to happen to godly people. This is the language of someone who believed that God was angry with him, 
So both Job and his friends agreed in their assumption that God was angry with Job. And it's clear that Job, like his friends, believed that the only reason God would be angry, the only reason that God would put an arrow through his heart, would be in recompense for sin. He believes God's angry, and he believes God's angry with him for some sin. Now look with me at chapter 13, 23, and you'll see why I say this. This is Job speaking to God. And he's asking God, why? Why is this happening? And here's this question. How many are my iniquities and sins? Make known to me my rebellion and my sin. Do you hear it? Why is this happening? And his default answer is it must be that God is angry about some sin. Let me paraphrase what Job is saying for you. Job is saying God calamity like this is supposed to happen to bad people, to people who are iniquitous, to people who sin against you. The upright are supposed to be safe. So why is this happening to me? Tell me what I've done to deserve this. And make no mistake, the question, what have I done to deserve this, was indeed the tone of Job's question in verse 23. This isn't an honest question. Job is not coming to God here humbly and saying, maybe I have sinned. Maybe I've been hiding my sin so well that I myself haven't even seen it. God, maybe you're issuing me a wake-up call. Maybe I have provoked you. Tell me what it is. That's not it. This is not an honest question. Job here is accusing God of punishing him and Job still being righteous and not deserving it. Job is speaking to God the same way some people today speak to God. When something bad happens and they turn their faces heavenward and say, what did I ever do to deserve this? That's how Job is speaking to God. How do I know that's what Job meant? Because in the rest of this long section, 3 through 37, Job repeatedly argues that he is guiltless. For instance, in chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, that he walked in integrity, 26, 5 and so on. Job didn't actually believe he'd done anything to deserve his sufferings. He didn't believe he'd provoked God. He didn't believe he had committed some crime that had warranted God's severe backlash. And he was right. Hear that well. He was right. He hadn't done anything to provoke God. God himself tells us in chapters 1 and 2 that Job was blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. So God and Job both agreed that Job hadn't done anything to bring calamity down on his head. But here's the key. Here's the important thing. Though Job was right to say that he hadn't done anything to deserve God's punishment, chapter 13, 23 and other verses as well demonstrate that while Job was right to believe that he hadn't done anything to deserve, his, to deserve punishment, he still believed that God was punishing him. Indeed, Job believed that God was punishing him for some sin that he hadn't committed. Thus the question in 1323, what have I done to deserve this? I haven't done anything to deserve this, and yet you're punishing me like a sinner. Job makes accusations that God is treating him unfairly all throughout these chapters. He says in 917, God multiplies my wounds without cause. And he says in 196, God has wronged me. Job thought that because he was godly, he should be free of suffering. Isn't that what his friends thought? 
exactly what his friends thought. If you're godly, you won't suffer. And Job thought, since I'm godly, I shouldn't suffer. In other words, Job didn't make the connection that we've been trying to make. Just like his friends, Job couldn't see any other way that God would permit his calamity unless God was angry with him. And so he assumed, just like his friends assumed, that God was indeed angry with him, that God was in fact punishing him. And the only difference between Job and his friends is that while Job's friends believed that Job must somehow have provoked God to punish him, Job himself believed that God was punishing him unjustly or 917 without cause. But they both believed that God was punishing Job and they were wrong. Do you see? Job had placed God in the very same box that Zophar and Eliphaz and Bildad had placed him. And on the outside of that box was a label that said, God only allows sorrow and suffering as a repayment for evil deeds. Bad things are only supposed to happen to bad people. All four men believed that. And therefore they had a dilemma. Because Job apparently wasn't a bad man. Apparently, at least, he was an upright man, and yet his life had turned into a train wreck. And so what were these men going to do with that? It didn't fit into the box. How were they going to put together the idea that only wicked people suffer, bad things only happen to bad people, with the fact that Job, who is apparently upright, is suffering? How do they put that together? Well, Job's friends responded by trying to jam Job himself down into the box. Bad things only happen to bad people, so you must be a bad person, Job. God must be angry with you. And Job tried to respond to the dilemma by jamming God into the box. He too believes that bad things are only supposed to happen to bad people. And he believed with all of his heart that he wasn't a bad person. So how does he fit the dilemma? How does he fix the problem? He jams God into the box and says, God, you've got the wrong man. God, I haven't done anything to deserve this. God, you're punishing me as though I provoked you, but I haven't provoked you. It never occurred to Job or his friends that the solution to the dilemma might not have been to assume the worst about Job and jam him into the box. And that the solution equally might not have been to assume that God was punishing Job and to jam God into the box and then therefore say he's being unjust for punishing Job, who's a good man. It never occurred to them that the solution might have been as simple as taking God out of the box and throwing the box away. Indeed, that was the solution simply to realize that their maxim was wrong, that suffering is not always a punishment for wrongdoing, that God, for wise, loving, Romans 8, 28 kinds of purposes, sometimes allows even godly people to undergo great difficulty. That thought never occurred to Job or his friends. It never occurred to them that Job's calamity might not have been a punishment at all, that God might not have been angry at all. And we know from chapters 1 and 2 that he wasn't. That never occurred to Job and his friends, but I hope it occurs to you. I hope it occurs to you when you see a brother or sister in Christ suffering. Don't be an Eliphaz. Don't be a Bildad and a Zophar. Don't jam your friend into this box and assume the worst about them. Don't assume that God would only allow such a thing to happen to that person if he were really angry with them. 
For in an attempt to fit your brother's suffering into the box in which you have placed God, you may end up defaming that person's character or breaking their spirit in the process. And when calamity strikes you, don't assume that it's necessarily because God is angry with you. That may be the reason, but it may well not be. And if you attempt to wedge God into the box that says bad things only happen to people when God's angry with them, if you attempt to jam God into that box, you may end up charging Him with wrongdoing. You may end up looking heavenward and saying, bad things happen to bad people, and I'm not a bad person. Why is this happening? What did I do to deserve this? And that's not the way you want to talk to God. You don't want to end up pointing your finger in His face and accusing Him of wrongdoing, I hope. And if you do, you may end up being ashamed of yourself when you think about it for a few minutes. Because none of us is getting anywhere close to what we actually deserve. God is gracious to us. Even when we're suffering, we're being treated better than we deserve. And in the moment of calamity, it may well be that God has good, wise, Romans 8, 28 kind of plans for you that you can't even imagine or fathom. So don't try to make God fit into any mold other than the one he has explicitly crafted for himself in the scriptures. Don't try to fit God into a box and say, God must be doing X unless his word explicitly says that he always does X in a given situation. Instead, when God does something which seems mysterious or incomprehensible, when God does something that doesn't fit into the box that you've constructed, destroy the box. And trust God. When God does something you don't understand, don't question Him. Fall to the ground and worship Him for being wiser than you are. Now, much more briefly, two other areas in which Job was wrong. He was wrong to join in the argument to begin with. He was wrong in that he placed God into the same box as his friends had placed Him. Thirdly, Job was wrong in that he thought a little too highly of himself. He was wrong in that he thought a little too highly of himself. Job began the argument with his friends in some way rightly, defending himself against their false accusations. They said, all these terrible things are happening to you because you've done something terrible and dastardly to provoke the Almighty. You look blameless and upright from the outside, Job, but inside you must really be a liar and a cheat. And Job, I say, was right to defend himself against such accusations. They weren't true. Job knew, of course, that he wasn't sinless. Job knew that he needed forgiveness. He tells us that in chapter 14, 17. Job also knew that he wasn't the snake that his friends were accusing him of being. He doesn't think he's sinless, but he knows that he's not as bad as they're saying. And so he defends his uprightness before their charges, and he's right to do that. But somewhere along the line, it seems, Job's understandable defense against the wild and untrue accusations of his friends evolved into something a little less justifiable. Somewhere along the line, Job ceased simply arguing that he was not guilty of his friend's charges and began going a great deal further in his self-defense. Somewhere his self-defense turned into self-promotion. Somewhere along the line, his argument changed from, I am indeed not guilty, chapter 10, verse 7, to something along the lines of, I'm actually the picture of, of moral excellence. In fact, if you were to turn in your Bible dictionaries to the word godly, you'd find a picture of me there. 
Somewhere along the line, that's what he began to say to his friends, and I want to show that to you. It is true that God himself had said that there was no one like Job. Job was indeed a godly man. Indeed, we might picture him when we think of godly. But it's not right to go around claiming that about yourself, is it? And that's what Job begins to do. It's not right to save yourself some of the things we're going to hear Job saying toward the end of this long section. Listen, for instance, or turn, for instance, to chapter 27, verses 5 and 6. 27, 5 and 6, where Job says, Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach any of my days. He's not saying till I die I'll walk with integrity. He's saying till I die I won't, I won't admit that I don't have integrity. Or again to paraphrase, Job is saying in those verses, no one can convince me that I'm not a man of integrity. No one can convince me that I'm not completely righteous. Indeed, as I look back, verse 6, over the long course of my life, there's not even a single day that I regret or feel bad about. I've always, always, always walked in integrity. Does that sound a little strong? There's not even a single day in my life that I look back and feel bad about. I submit to you that Job got out over his skis a little too far. Job began rightly by defending himself against baseless slander, but he ended up by boasting in his own righteousness, by saying things about himself that only one human being can say, and it's not Job. Indeed, we won't read them, but if you looked at chapters 29 through 31, what you would find is Job giving a long speech in which he recounts all of the godly things that he's done in his life. He talks about how people used to look up to him and hang on his every word because he was so godly. How he looked after the poor and the blind and the widows, how he never had a lustful thought, never rejoiced over his enemies, and so on. He goes on for three chapters like that, promoting himself. And so Job's friends were right in this one regard. They were right in chapter 32, verse 1, to say Job is righteous in his own eyes. And Elihu, the young man who is standing on the side and who jumps into the argument in chapter 32, is right in 32-2 when he says that Job justified himself before God. Job thought a little too highly of himself as the argument went along. He would have done well if he could have read what Isaiah wrote in his prophecy in the 64th chapter. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Job would have done well to substitute Isaiah 64.6 for Job 29-31. through 31. And he would have benefited from hearing King Solomon say, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Job would have done well to let God praise him in chapters 1 and 2, blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil instead of praising himself. And we would do well to do that too. No matter how well you may do, never ever begin to trust in or boast in your own righteousness. For after all, it's not actually your own, is it? Paul asked the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? 
1 Corinthians 4, 7. And if you did receive it, why do you boast? And as Isaiah reminds us, even when we receive from the Lord the ability to do right, that is always mingled with our own sin. So that if we try to present our righteous deeds to God, if we try to justify ourselves before God, it only amounts to filthy, contaminated rags. Bear these things in mind when you're given the strength to walk uprightly. And let another praise you and not your own mouth. Fourthly, Job was wrong in that he was short-sighted. He was wrong in that he was short-sighted. One of the reasons why Job responded as he did in chapter 3, one of the reasons that is for his woe is me speech there, one of the reasons he lost his hope in the midst of his calamity was because he forgot about heaven. Now we're going to see in a few moments that Job did indeed believe in heaven. And at least at one point during these speeches, he turned his gaze there and gained hope. But most of Job's verbiage in these long, drawn-out chapters is that of a man who doesn't believe in life beyond the grave. It's that of a man who believes that this life is all there is. And let me just show you a couple of passages that show that. 14, 7 through 12. Job 14, 7 through 12. Job, again, is speaking. And he says... For there is hope for a tree when it is cut down that it will sprout again and its shoots will not fail. Though its roots grow old in the ground and its stump dies in the dry soil, at the scent of water it will flourish and put forth sprigs like a plant. But man dies and lies prostitute. Man expires and where is he? As water evaporates from the sea and a river becomes parched and dried up, so man lies down and does not rise. Until the heavens are no longer, he will not awake nor be aroused out of his sleep. You hear Job's hopelessness there? When a tree dies, it might actually, there might be a little germ of life in there that will sprout up again. But when I die, that's it. I'm not even as well off as a tree. I'll just lie in the dust forever. And he punctuates that kind of thinking a few chapters over in chapter 9, verse 10, when he says, God has uprooted my hope like a tree. In other words, Job is saying, because my life has gone so sour, I have lost hope. Really, Job? Do we have hope in this life only? No matter how bad it gets in this life, do we have hope in this life only? Isn't our hope largely grounded in what is beyond this life? In the resurrection, in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth? And one might argue, well, Job, he was an Old Testament believer. Indeed, he was at the very beginning of the Old Testament. He didn't know about the resurrection. He didn't know about heaven, perhaps. But as we're going to see in just a few moments from a later portion of chapter 19, he certainly did know about heaven. His problem wasn't that he didn't know about heaven. He didn't know about eternal life. His problem was that his afflictions had made him short-sighted. His sufferings had coaxed him into living as though this present world were all there is. With his mind, he knew that there's life beyond the grave, but he had begun to live as though there wasn't because he was suffering so badly. And that happens sometimes to us all, does it not? Things can get so tough in the here and now that we're tempted to forget about the there and then. 
But it's precisely as we make ourselves remember that there is a there and then that we gain help and hope in the here and now. It's as we remember that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us, Romans 8.18, that we gain hope. So in the dark night of the soul, no one's going to fault you if you temporarily lose sight of eternity, if you become momentarily short-sighted. But learn the lesson of Job. If you remain short-sighted, if you do not force yourself to remember Romans 8.18, if you do not quickly turn your gaze heavenward, you're only going to dig yourself into a deeper and deeper rut. Indeed, you may end up doing and saying some things that you'll regret. So, when you suffer, fix your eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 12.2, who for the joy set before Him, who for the heaven set before Him endured the cross. And you can endure all your little crosses too if you fix your eyes on Jesus and on the joy that he has set before you in eternal life. Now, I've spent a great deal more time on the areas that Job went wrong than I'm going to give now to the things that he got right. I hope that's fair. I think the time that I'll spend on each of these two extremes is reflective of the time that Job spent himself at each extreme. That is... A great deal of what Job says in chapters 3 through 31 is off base and ill-advised and self-righteous. But he does make some wonderful statements. He does get some things wonderfully right. He says some things that remind us that he was indeed a man of great faith. He says some things that teach us that all the foolish things that he said were the aberrations of a really bad day and an incredibly hard set of circumstances and not the general tone of Job's life. The general tone of Job's life was faith and faithfulness. And in these last few moments, I want to demonstrate that by pointing out three marvelous ways in which Job got it right. Number one, Job was right to affirm the sovereignty of God. He was right to affirm the sovereignty of God. We saw this in chapters one and two, didn't we? Job was aware that there were secondary causes for his calamity. He was aware of the marauding Sabaeans and Chaldeans. He was aware of the lightning bolt or the fire that caught the sheep barn on fire. He was aware of the high, heavy winds that destroyed his son's home and killed all ten young people inside. And Job, being a spiritual man, may have even been aware or at least had an inkling that Satan was somehow at work too. But ultimately, in chapters 1 and 2, Job ascribes control over all these things to God. The Lord gave, 121. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So I say again that in chapters 1 and 2, Job believed that God was in control and that God was good. And in chapters 3 through 31 now, though Job lost sight of the fact that God is good, He still believed that God was in control. He didn't like the way in which God was demonstrating his control, but he still had confidence that God was sovereign over his difficulties. Indeed, he says that throughout these chapters. Chapter 6, verse 4, The terrors of God are arrayed against me. God is the one who is in control of this difficulty. Chapter 23, verse 16, It is God who has made my heart to faint. And so on. 
In fact, Job's confidence that God is absolutely sovereign reaches one of its high points in chapter 9, verses 5 through 12. You might turn there as I read it to you. Listen to his confidence in God's sovereignty. Again, he's not real happy with God's sovereignty right now, but he never throws it away. 9.5, it is God who removes the mountains. They know not how. When he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea, who makes the bear Orion and the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things unfathomable and wondrous works without number. Were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? Who could say to him, what are you doing? Job believes that God is in control of all of these things. And this is one of the most profound pieces of poetry in the Bible, I think. Composed by a man who's angry with God, yes, but who still affirms God's sovereignty. And that is important to notice. Job was wrong in his application of God's sovereignty, his attitude towards it, but he was right to affirm that God was and is sovereign over all things. And we know that Job was right to affirm that because when he makes the same affirmation in chapter 121, the narrator tells us in the very next verse, through all of this, Job did not sin. Job was utterly unlike many in our day, even in the church. In our own day, even in the church, there are no shortage of books and authors who in dealing with the question of how there can be a good God and such a bad world, solve that dilemma by saying that God must not be in control of all things, that God must not know all things. Now, Some of them try to sweeten up that solution by saying, well, God is intentionally not in control. He's not in control, but he's in control of not being in control. They say God, by design, lets some things and people and angelic forces run free. He doesn't have them on a leash and he doesn't even know what they're going to do. But Job never went there. Even when he was angry with God, he never went there. Job was never willing to entertain the idea that God might actually not know some things or be in control of some things. That God was open to the winds of happenstance. And Job, the narrator, tells us in chapter 122 and in chapter 210 was right. Not right to be angry with God. Not right to think that God was exercising his sovereignty unjustly, but right to affirm that God was and is in control of the sun, the waves, the constellations, the tornadoes, and the boils on the bottom of Job's feet. Job got that part right, and so must you. Secondly, Job was right in that he held on to a sliver of faith. He held on to a sliver of faith. And here I must be very brief, but let these few words suffice. Though Job seemed in chapters 3 through 31 to have lost all his confidence in God, though he seemed to have given up hope in God's goodness, there are some glimmers of hope that lead us to believe that Job had not fallen away completely. The most memorable among these is chapter 13, verse 15, in which Job said, Profoundly and famously, though he slay me, 
I will hope in him. 1315, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Isn't that awesome? I think that outside of the words of Jesus himself, this must be the greatest confession of faith in all of the Bible, perhaps in all of world history. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. No matter what God does, I'm not going to give up trusting him. Can you say that? I know you're going to have your dark moments. So am I. Tragedy is going to come, and it's going to come sometimes accompanied by despair and doubt, at least seasons of it. Things are going to happen to you that will tear your soul almost in two and leave you wondering what good God could possibly work out of this. But I hope that beneath all of that, in the midst of the questions and the doubts and the tears and the struggles, your underlying commitment of faith will be, though he slay me, I will hope in him. And I pray for you that in the dark night of your soul, that will be so. Finally, thirdly, Job was right to long for a Savior. He was right to long for a Savior. Perhaps this is the most striking thing in these middle chapters of the book of Job. Job didn't know the name of Jesus, of course. He didn't know all the details that we know. But he knew, though he wasn't always willing to admit it, he knew deep down that he needed forgiveness. Chapter 14, 17, he knew that he needed his transgression to be sealed up in a bag and for God to wrap up to cover his iniquity. Job knew that. And he knew that he needed someone to rescue him from the sorrows of this sin-sick world. Job was longing for a Savior. And at least sometimes he believed that God would actually send one. In fact, he said so at three different points along the way. In the midst of all the junk that he says, he says some amazing things. And I want you to follow along as we notice three places where Job longs for a Savior. First, chapter 9, verse 33. Chapter 9, verse 33. There in that verse, Job is longing for an umpire. An umpire, someone who can serve as an arbitrator between God and man. Someone, he says, who may lay his hand upon us both. And while, depending on what translation you're reading, there is some question as to whether or not Job, at this point, has confidence that God will give him an umpire. The significant thing is that he longs for one. He needs an umpire. He longs for an arbitrator who, on the one hand, has pulled with God but who on the other hand can sympathize with Job, a man. And we know, of course, the umpire's name. We know that Job's umpire is Jesus, the God-man, fully God in himself, having the ear and the sympathies of the Father, and yet also fully man too, so that he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Hebrews 4.15 Jesus is the umpire who can lay a hand on God because he is God, and who can lay a hand on man Because he is man. Jesus is our go-between. And he is our umpire. Job longs not only for an umpire, but he longs also for an advocate. Chapter 16, verse 19. Job longs for an advocate. For a lawyer, in other words, who can plead his case before God. For someone who knows the law knows the judge, and can perhaps wrestle Job free from the sentence that he seems to be under. 
And in this case, Job is certain that he will have this advocate. My advocate is on high. And I hope that you're certain as well. Jesus is our advocate. The Apostle John tells us so, doesn't he? If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John 2, 1. Jesus, by his shed blood, has pled our case as an advocate, as a lawyer. He hasn't defended us as Job might have sometimes wished he would. He hasn't defended us based on our merits. But he has defended us based on his own merits. Jesus at the cross, in effect, said to the Father, Job is not as righteous as he thinks, Father. And neither are any of these other people. They deserve death and they deserve hell. So I plead their case, not by defending them, but by pleading my own blood, by standing in their place, by taking their punishment for them, by dying for their sins. And he continues... Hebrews says to sit at God's right hand and to intercede for us as an advocate. Jesus is the advocate that both we and Job are so desperately in need of. Have you hired him? His legal services, as you know, are free. And he has a 100% success rate. Not guilty. Every time. He's the only advocate that you'll ever need. Indeed, he's the only advocate that you have. So I hope before the day is through, if you haven't already, that you will take Jesus up on his offer. And as you consider that, turn to one last portion of the book of Job, this time chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, where Job said, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. I told you Job believed in heaven. He didn't always show it, but deep down Job believed in heaven. Here he affirms his belief that there is a Redeemer, one who will stand on the earth. Verse 25. One who will raise Job from the dead so that even after his skin is destroyed, verse 26, he will still be able to see God. Job believed in a Redeemer who would actually be God himself, verse 26b. I shall see God. And Job trusted in and looked to this Redeemer, verse 27, and not another. For all that Job got wrong, he was right about the Redeemer. Right to look forward to his coming. Right to look forward to heaven. Right to believe that redemption is in him and not another. And despite all that you get wrong, despite all the areas where your life and your thinking are askew, I hope that you are right about Jesus too. Do you know that your Redeemer lives? And are you looking forward, verse 26, to seeing him face to face? Do you believe with Job and with the New Testament that salvation, verse 27, is in him and not another? That, Acts 4.12, there is no other name by which we must be saved. I hope you do.